Samuel 17, starting in verse 41. It says, And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with a shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and a handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you could you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field, uh, fields. And then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down. And cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with the sling and with the stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. And then we get the part that we don't read during the VBS story, right? <laughs> then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. All right, David and Goliath, um, also known as the Battle at the Valley of Elah, one of the most iconic stories, uh, not only in our Bible, but in all of humanity. This may be the most well-known story in the world. It might be. Um, the story of how a small individual or a small team can overcome overwhelming odds, that no matter your size, or skill, there is always hope to do the unthinkable, right? This story has been used to describe countless sporting events. Uh, most famously, uh, 1980, the U.S. hockey team, a bunch of scrappy college kids, defeated Russia. It is described as the ultimate David and Goliath story. Every time a 16 seed beats a number one seed during March Madness, you hear David and Goliath, right? Uh, David and Goliath has been the inspiration behind countless movies, movies. Rocky Balboa defeating Apollo Creed, Kung Fu Panda, the story of a noodle-eating panda that is destined to become the elite warrior of all. It is said to be even the inspiration behind the movie Legally Blonde. If you don't know what that is, I'm not going to waste your time telling you about it. Um, but I would venture to say that though this might be the most well-known story in our Bible, it just might be the most misunderstood. Sure, it's a story about overwhelming odds. It's a story, you can say it's a story about the underdog. You can say it's a story about surprising victory. But the point of this story is much, much deeper than that. This is not just the story about the surprising victory of the little guy. The story of David and Goliath is nothing more than the gospel. It's the story about how God has chosen to bring, to bring victory over sin through a mediator, through a chosen, the chosen and anointed of God. It's a story about the hopelessness and depravity of man. In the midst of our depravity, God has made a way for victory over death. So let's jump in to verse 1. 
Now the Philistines, this is 1 Samuel 17, verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah and Ephes Damon. The Philistines, uh, as you have noticed by now, are the perpetual enemy of God. They keep coming back over and over. And the Philistines were one of the most advanced nations in the world. They were the first people in the history of the world um, to work with browns and iron. This entire age is known as the Iron Age, and the Philistines were the leaders of that age. They controlled three major cities along the Via Maris. So I've got a map. You can see them um, up here on the right side. Um, you've got three cities there, Gezer, Gezer Megiddo, and Hazor. Um, these cities, you can think of them as the New York City, Philadelphia, and Miami of the ancient world. These were cities that were controlled by the Philistines. But here's the problem. That land is not theirs. That land belongs to the people of God. That is the promised land. But the people of God never believed that they could have it. And so they are, uh, the Philistines are invaders in this moment, and they are pushing down uh, into the, the land that the people of God have. Verse 2, it says, And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered in camp at the valley of Elah and drew up in line a battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley in between them. On the other map, on there, if you could pull that back up, the map on the left, it's not that big, but you can see those little blue dot and a red dot. Um, they're standing on the side of a mountain, two mountains. And there's a valley in between, and they're having the longest stare-off in the history of stare-offs, right? And in verse 4, it says, There came out from the camp, if you can picture this, there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Goth, whose height was six cubits and a span. Now that word champion is a unique word in Hebrew. Um, this is actually the only place, this chapter, it's the only place it's used in all of Scripture. It's he in Hebrew, it's a combination for the words man and between that a human being steps in between these two armies and he identifies himself as a gate. If you want victory, you got to go through me. And it's clear that this text wants us to understand one very specific thing about this champion. He is terrifying. He is scary. Uh, it says that he was six cubits in a span. None of, no one really agrees on how tall that is. It could be anywhere from six foot eight to nine foot six. The point is that he was tall. The average male during this time was around five foot. So he was physically superior to everyone else around him. And more than that, he had better equipment than everyone else around him. You get uh, the next three verses give you details about all of his stuff, his helmet, his coat of mail that, were, that, that weighed 5,000 shekels. That's 125 pounds. In Hebrew, that word male is the word scales, right? So he is using, uh, wearing a coat of scales. The question, what animal do you think of when you hear the word scales? I think of snake. Coincidence? I doubt it. The Bible gives a lot of details about the superiority of Goliath. And so we have to ask the question, why? Why does the Bible spend so much time talking about his stuff and how terrifying he was? The Old Testament doesn't usually do this. It usually goes straight to the point, right? For example, the, the creation story doesn't say Adam walked through the bright yellow flowers and wind flowed through his hair, right? It doesn't tell you details like that. It gets straight to the point. You got man created, woman created, tree is bad, man ate from tree, man is bad. 
here in 1 Samuel 17, we get a lot of detail. Why? I think all of this detail is to make us feel the weight of what's happening here. We are meant to feel what the Israelites felt, which is fear. This champion is terrifying. He's bigger, he's stronger, and he's more superior in every way. If you want victory, you got to go through him and you can't. We are meant to feel the hopelessness that they felt. Side, side note, there's also something else going on here. All throughout this book, we were reminded that appearance is not what God values. We saw it with Saul. We saw it with Eliab last chapter, that it's not the appearance that matters, but what matters is the heart. And Goliath is the pinnacle description of a warrior. If looks told the story, then there is no hope. And the question all throughout this book is, will you trust God even when it appears that all hope is lost? And if the way that Goliath looked wasn't scary enough, now he's going to start to talk trash. And he's pretty good at it. Verse 8, he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? By the way, servants of who? Saul. Who's their idol? Saul. They're not servants of the Lord. They are serving their idol. Therefore, they are fearful. Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. Goliath challenges Israel to representative combat. If your guy wins, you all win. But if he loses, you all lose. You select a hero. And if he wins, you share in his victories. But if he loses, you share in his defeat. Hey, Israel, pick a champion, a man that will stand between the people of God and the enemy. I mean, do you see it yet? The gospel in this story, it's so much more than we think it is. Verse 10, the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. That word defy, it's all over this chapter. It means to taunt, to scorn, to mock. It was a serious offense to defy God. So in verse 11, when Saul and Israel heard these words of the Philistine, what's their response to this Gentile defying God? They were dismayed and greatly afraid. This man is so terrifying that even Saul was afraid. Now, granted, he's old at this point, but do you remember why the people chose Saul? He stood head and shoulders above everyone else. He's supposed to be their warrior king that would protect them. The king chosen by man to replace God has fallen short. Surprise, surprise. Instead of leading the people of God to victory, he leads them into fear. He is afraid and the people follow him in that fear. So now the scene is set up. The champion of the enemy is set for battle and the people of God led by the, their king are shaking in their boots. And the question is, who is going to be the champion for the people of God? Verse 12, now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. An Ephrathite refer, refers to a man from the Judean Ephrathah around Bethlehem. It was a region around Bethlehem. And just for fun, let me read you a passage from Micah 5 too. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Remember what we talked about last week and the week before. Remember the promise. Someone is coming. Someone is coming. Someone is coming. We find out that David's brother served in the army under Saul. 
uh, and that his dad wants David to deliver some cheese. Verse 18, uh, David's dad says to David, also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See, this is why we know the Bible is true. No one would write that in there. Hey, David, take these cheeses. Great, great plot. <laughs> um, and he says, see if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. He wants to know if his sons are okay. So do David doesn't arrive as a warrior. He is God's anointed, but he's not going to force the purposes of God. He doesn't walk in and go, now it's time. Let me take over. He walks in and says, would you like some Gouda? Right? <laughs> um, but he stewards well the small tasks that he's given. That's what he does. He stewards well the small tasks that he's given. And as he goes on, God begins to open doors and it becomes obvious what David must do. Verse 23, as he talked with him, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. I love that line. And David heard him. I've actually got a video clip that describes, shows David in this moment. I mean, you can picture David, right, in this moment. David heard him. What did that guy just say? Did you hear that? What did he say? I mean, I can picture him being fi fired up. Remember I told you last week uh, that typically the first words of a character in Hebrew literature reveals who they are, what they care about. What do you see as David's first words? While everyone is afraid, David wants to know who the man is that defies God. He has a heart that is devoted to the Lord. Right? While everyone is scared, David is thinking about the glory of his God. David's putting a theological lens on this situation. I don't care who he is. You can't do that. And as David starts to ask questions, his brothers uh, begin to accuse him of false motives. Verse 28, Eliab, his eldest brother, heard him when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David and said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. David doesn't even respond to it. It was just a word. Verse 29, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? That's basically the text way of saying David ignores him. If David had engaged with Eliab, it would have been about David's ego in this moment. It would have been about him, about David himself. But David isn't concerned with his own self-worth. He is focused on the glory of his God. The fight wasn't with his brother. The real fight's against the Philistine who was cursing God. So, I mean, just a quick side note, don't get caught up in what others assume about you. Don't get, be concerned with your ego. Keep your eyes on the real fight of faith. Keep your eyes set on Christ. And David begins to ask questions. Saul hears about it, and he sends for him in verse 32. It says, David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. I imagine this was surprising to Saul. The cheese boy, the boy who plays the harp, he wants to fight. Verse 33, Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. So I was like, bruh, are you joking? Right? You're a kid. That guy's a warrior, which is completely understandable. David is a teenager. He's too young to even serve in the army. He doesn't have any battle experience. He doesn't even have any weapons. And I love David's response. Verse 34. David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. Not a good start, David. Um, and when there came a lion or a bear, and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard, which I would love to see a bear with a beard. 
um, and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he defied the armies of the living God. So first notice something here. David said, I used to keep sheep for my father. It seems at this point he's fully embraced the call of God. He's left his old life behind. But David says, hey, I've been victorious in the wilderness when I was with my God, and now I know I will be victorious with my God here today. And notice his heart. When he would lose a sheep, he didn't just shrug his shoulders. He would chase down that sheep, and he would kill that enemy. He would literally leave the 99 to chase down the one. And he says in verse 37, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Notice his argument. God has prepared me for this. He has given me the skill. And more than that, I know that I have the Lord with me. He will deliver me. He is with me. He's been faithful to me in the past and he will be faithful to me now. And so Saul agrees. He tries to armor him up. There's nothing significant about this situation. David's just too small. And that's not who David is. He's a shepherd, so he can't fit in the armor. He's not a trained warrior. So verse 40, it says, he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the brook, and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hands, and he approached the Philistine. By the way, what do these five smooth stones represent? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Um, (laughs) You may have heard from someone somewhere at some point from a well-meaning Bible teacher that these Stones represent faith and trust and worship. That's not true. David picked up five rocks, rocks for his sling. That's it. Uh, Which the fact that he only grabbed five is surprising to me. I would have grabbed like a hundred and had a big old bag, right? But David grabs five, just stones. Verse 41, the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with the shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog? You come to me with sticks, and the Philistine cursed David by his gods. In other words, did you really just send out Justin Bieber to come fight me? The word curse is significant here. Do you remember what the promise made to Abraham was? Genesis 12. Whoever curses you, I will curse. Goliath doesn't know what David knows, the power of Yahweh and the worth of his name. And by the way, according to Leviticus Leviticus 24, blasphemy against God was a capital offense, punishable by stoning. Just thought I'd point that out. Verse 44, the Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the field. I mean, David knows how to talk some trash. Okay, I don't know if you've noticed that. Um, and we as the reader are like, yeah, David, you tell him. Pay close attention to what he says next, though. It's not about him. Why is David showing such courage in this moment? Why is he so confident that his God will win? He says that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. God, it's about one thing, and it's the greatest news for us, the glory of his name. And in giving him glory, we get our ultimate joy. Hey, Goliath, everyone here will know my Yahweh. My people, 
your people, the entire world, will know the glory of my God. Notice that David has a different perspective than everybody else. He has a different perspective. He has the spirit of God in him. Everyone else is focused on how terrifying Goliath is. David is focused on his Lord. I pray that we would have a holy perspective on our circumstances. Because I know, man, some of you walk in here and life is in crumbles. And you're trying your best to hide that feeling. You're trying to put on a nice face that will match the nice clothes. I pray that we would have a holy perspective. That we wouldn't see just how terrifying our enemy is or how terrifying our circumstances are. How scary our sins are, how powerful the enemy is but that we would see the power of God that saves us. Every single person on the globe desires to have courage, desires to to be able to be strong. Courage for the believer begins when you change the perspective. It's not about me, it's about him. I'm weak, but he is strong. I'm unknowing, but he's omniscient. Courage begins when we stop asking, what am I capable of? But God, what are you capable of? The Lord of hosts, the commander of heaven's armies are on my side. So I will not fear. Remember what David said, for the battle is the Lord. It's his battle and he will get the glory that is due his name. Remember the song, the battle belongs to him. So when I fight, I'll fight on my knees with my hands lifted high. Verse 48, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David looks like he's gonna meet Goliath face to face. Goliath probably thinks he has the advantage. Hand-to-hand combat. Combat. Verse 49, David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed or the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. So David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistine saw that their champion was dead, they fled. So there you have it story of David and Goliath. What's the point of this story? What's the meaning behind it? Well, you, you, some have said, and you could say, uh, Goliath represents your fears, and David represents you. Therefore, you need to go out, and you need to conquer your fears. Believe in yourself. No problem is too big that you can't conquer it if you just have faith that God is on your side. Goliath is your lust problem. You gotta get out there and conquer it. Goliath is your pride. You gotta have faith and defeat it. Goliath is your fear of evangelism. You gotta kill that fear. If you trust God, God will give you victory over all the giants in your life, right? Whether it's the person who's mean to you, that rival sports team, God will give you the victory if you just believe. Is that the main point of this story? No. I remember I went to youth camp um, when I was a teenager. It was the first year I was a Christian. And the worship leader said, uh, will you answer the call like David and defeat the giants of your life? And then we sing, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes. Wait, yes, yes, Lord. Remember that? Um, And look, I don't mean to mock well-meaning Bible teachers who have taught this story like that. There is some truth in there. But it is an issue when we interpret this story, the story of David and Goliath, as being about us, saying, I am David, and Goliath is my fear. And if I just have faith, God will give me victory. Because here's the reality. Some of us in here will struggle with the battle of lust for the rest of our lives. Some of us in here will struggle with pride for the rest of our lives. Some of us in here will get cancer. And God won't heal us of that cancer. 
we will die. So does that mean we just didn't have enough faith? Does that mean God wasn't strong enough? We aren't meant to interpret this story as if we are David. We're not. You know who we are in this story? We're Israel. Our story is not like David's. Our story is like Israel's. We are powerless. We are separated from God because of our sin. And when we are under the power of the prince of the air, and when we come face to face with our enemy, we submit to him. When Goliath stands before us, we cower in fear. We are a slavery. We are in slavery to our depravity. The stain of sin goes deeper than we think. And on our own, we cannot know God. We will always submit to the terrifying power of the enemy. And in this moment, God does not send a cheerleader. He doesn't send a pump-up speech. He doesn't tell Israel to just believe in themselves. You know what God sends? A substitute. He sends a substitute. He sends an anointed, the chosen of God, to stand in between the people of God and the enemy. I will fight for you, the chosen says. And when I win, you will share in my victories. I will do what you cannot do, Israel, and my victory will be your victory. 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. In this story, Goliath is not a representation of our circumstances. He's not a representation of our fear. He is a representation of our state before God without Christ. He is the picture of death. Without Christ, that is what waits for us. And there is nothing that we can do about it. We are incapable of saving ourselves from that enemy and our idols, the things that we worship, whatever, our money, social status, career, family, the list goes on and on, on and on. These idols that we worship though, the saws of our lives, the things that we have chosen in an attempt to save us, to make us feel better, they sit on the sidelines because they are incapable of delivering us. The story of David and Goliath, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about the hope that we find in Jesus. It's about the one who goes before us and represents us. It's about the one who defeats death. Just like David crushed the head of Goliath, Jesus crushed the head of Satan. That's why it's so graphic. Why is it so graphic? Because it's telling a story about what's coming. Just like Israel, we share in the king's victory. Jesus fought as our representative and he died as our representative. And in his victory, we are now free from the power of death. Goliath has power over us no longer because death has been defeated. Think about it. For 40 days... Goliath stood in the valley of Elah and he taunted the people of God. Think about it. Be there. Day after day, he reminded them, you are incapable. You are not strong enough. You are not worthy. It's not much different from what happens today from the enemy. That the enemy stands every day in front of us and tries to remind us, you are not strong enough. You are not valuable. No one cares about you. God does not love you. You do not have it in you. And you know what? He's right. You can't defeat him. You're not strong enough. And here's the point of David and Goliath, that we as the people of God can look in the face of Satan and proclaim, yeah, I may be weak, but my representative is strong. I may be incapable, but my God is the Lord of hosts. I may be unworthy, but I have one who stands in my place and he fights my battle. And in his grace, I'm free. At the cross, Jesus took the sword out of Satan's hand and he killed him with it. 
He took an instrument of death, the cross, and he made it an instrument of grace. This is Hebrews 2.14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. I mean, come on, that's 1 Samuel 17. We stood on the sidelines enslaved to our enemy, the representative of sin and death, and our king stepped in between us and him. He partook, he disarmed him, and he defeated him, and now our enemy can threaten us no longer. So let me ask you, when you think about this story, what are you afraid of? Where does your fear come from? Really, what scares you? Or let me ask another question. What representative do you look, do you look to? Do you listen to that voice of condemnation, the voice of the Goliath who shouts and taunts you and mocks you? Or do your eyes focus on your representative that steps in between and says, I will fight? The people of Israel, they were focused on nothing else but the threat. They weren't focused on the Savior, on the chosen, on the anointed. For us, there's so many of us in here, we're afraid of rejection. That if people found out this thing about us, they wouldn't accept us. And day after day, your enemy reminds you, hey, you're unworthy. Day after day, you hear that voice. What if you focus on the one who stood in your place? On your representative, Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What do you have to fear? What they think about you doesn't matter. Your devotion isn't to them. Your devotion is to your God. You don't need their approval because you are in Christ. You have it. So many of us in here, we're afraid of failing. Following God and what he's calling us to do. Being obedient to him, right? You hear the voice of the enemy telling you over and over, you're not good enough, why even try? You're not a good parent, look at how bad your kids are. You're not a good friend, see how much you let them down? You're not a good Christian, see how much better they are than you? And you have this fear over and over of not being good enough. And your faith is absolutely paralyzed. So when the calling of God comes into your life, you cower in fear. You stand on the sidelines and you begin to believe the words of Goliath. What if your representative took away the power of that fear? Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Psalm 139.14, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Do you believe that about yourself? About the people around you? You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Be careful who you listen to. Listen to the voice of the one who goes before you. He tells no lies. Failure is no longer a verdict on your life. Did you know that? Failure is no longer, you cannot fail in this life. You have already been declared worthy by the one who stood in your place. So the next time your accuser stands before you and tells you, hey, you failed. See, God can never love you. You need to know that Jesus stands in between you and him and says, no, I have already defeated you. You have no power here. I have separated their sin as far as the east is from the west. So here's the question for us. Where do our assurances really lie? What idols do we have? Are you putting your faith in the things of this world, the saws that stand on the sideline, powerless? Are do your eyes gaze on your representative, the one who stands in your place as your defender and your substitute? I'm willing to bet that there are people in here 
man, you have never, you've never submitted to your representative. You've never looked on him with worship and gratitude and say, I will follow you to the ends of the earth. I'm willing to bet that there's some of you in here, you still listen to the voice of Goliath over and over each day. Listen, you are incapable of winning that battle. You can't do it. You, you can't argue your, your way out of sin. You can't white-knuckle yourself out of sin. You are completely incapable of saving yourself. Just like Israel was completely incapable of saving themselves. They needed someone to stand in their place, and so do you. So the question for you is, are you going to try to find your insurance in your own works? Or will you look to the one who stands in the valley? who laid on the cross as a substitute for you. Death is what was coming for you. But now you have grace because of Jesus Christ. This story is nothing more than the gospel. So I ask you, if you've never received, look, if you've never, if you would not call yourself a Christian, God is not asking you to do anything There's no need to ask Jesus into your heart. Receive him. Receive his grace that pours out on you. And in these next few moments, worship him. Because he did stand in your place. And you can now have freedom in those circumstances, those terrible, awful circumstances that no one can explain to you why they're happening or what God God is allowing it to happen. God can give you holy perspective in those moments and confidence and assurance and hope that he is with you and that there is a home waiting for you in heaven where joy will be unending and that you can have joy in this moment because of Christ, because he stood in your place. So the only response of the church can be worship and joy and hope in the face of Jesus Christ.